He took a seat at the table and engaged in small talk while perusing the menu. It was lunchtime, and he hoped the bustle of the restaurant around him hid his shock at the prices. Across the table sat Simon Sinek, whose widely popular TED Talk the year before had propelled him to a kind of stardom. Simon had agreed to meet for lunch in Los Angeles with the stipulation that he only had one hour. As the conversation deepened, both men agreed to clear their schedules for the rest of the afternoon. At the conclusion of their meeting, Simon said, "Honestly, I don't believe you." I'm Nathan Havey, and I'm Amanda Catherine Roman. Welcome to episode five of Ten Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism. What you just heard is the true story of how Simon Sinek met our guest for today's episode, Mr. Bob Chapman. Simon accepted an invitation to come and see for himself. He was so taken by what he saw that he used the unbelievable story as one of the central case studies in his second book, Leaders Eat Last, in which he asserts that he cannot be accused of being a starry-eyed idealist if the kind of workplace he dreams is possible already exists in reality. Joining us with the fifth thing you should know about stakeholder capitalism, here's Bob Chapman. Barry Wimmel is a 135-year-old capital equipment company founded in St. Louis by Mr. Barry and Mr. Wimmeler. So Mr. Wimmeler designed a pasteurizer to pasteurize beer after the bottles been filled with beer to make sure that all the bacteria is dead so they can ship it to Chicago or Cleveland whatever. That's kind of the history. My dad had been invited into the company from Arthur Anderson, he was an auditor. And Mr. Waymiller offered him a job in 1953. So that's how our family got involved. My dad invested $30,000, a lot of money to my father. And Mr. Waymiller died in 1957 of a heart attack and my dad was put in the position of president. And then in 1963, some company came in and said, "Mr. Chapman, if you would like to buy out the Waymillers, we will lend you money against your assets." So my dad said, "Okay." And so my dad's $30,000 became 60% of the company. The company continued to struggle for years as technology moved on. Stayed alive but struggled. I decided to get an accounting degree. All of a sudden I was getting straight A's in business classes. My dad and I didn't have a bad relationship. We just didn't have much of a relationship. We didn't have anything in common until we had a language of business. Passed my CPA exam on the first sitting. I think all of a sudden he realized, you know, I think my son might have a little ability. He had no intention of working for the company. It was so broken, financial challenges, alcoholism, lots of issues. And so he sat down with me in February of 1969 and said, "Would you consider working for Barry Waymiller?" I need somebody I can trust. And my mom cried because she thought we'd hate each other. I wasn't in charge of anything, so that for 6 years I wandered through the business with my intellectual curiosity. It's a little bit like taking the cover off your watch and seeing how all these gears come together and create precise time. And if I didn't have a bright idea every day, I knew I'd missed an opportunity. 
in October 1975, we went to have a bite to eat because he was leaving for Australia the next day. And he said, you know, Bob, he said, you're kind of running the company now. I think I'm going to name you when I get back executive vice president. He died of a heart attack the next morning. So that's how I became CEO and president. In the 1980s, I had made some mistakes in trying to fix our old broken business, and I'd learned from those mistakes. So I began looking for companies that had the issues that I had that I learned to solve. We tried some things to make business more fun. We played games, you know, whoever sells the most of this wins, and we saw a profound change in behavior and joy and performance. We were surprised. We just wanted people to have fun. We had done this in engineering. We'd done it in sales. And I said to our chief people officer, I said, we need to sit down and talk about what's going on here. There's something bigger than just this little collective game over here or here. And we ended up with what we call the guiding principles of leadership. So it became kind of like the Ten Commandments or the Constitution of the United States. We had people actually sign it like the Declaration of Independence. It was so profound a document. It's still hanging just outside my office. Is this about the time of the Enron debacle? What strikes me is Enron had really good statements on the wall, but they didn't live them. And I said, we're not going to put it on the wall. We're going to put it in people's heads and hearts. I began going around and sitting down with a varied group of people in each operation. I say, this is what we believe in. How are we doing? Tell us where we're not living these values. One of the first meetings, a gentleman who worked in our plant in South Carolina said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, I work in the assembly area and I was given the chance to fly to Puerto Rico to install a machine. I was very proud to represent the company. I was there for a week or two installing the machine. And when I came back, I was walking in the plant with Mary, who works in the accounting department. And... We got to a certain point in the entrance and Mary turned to go in the office and I went into the plant. He said, everything is different. Mary wanted to call home to see how her one child was feeling and wasn't feeling well, so she picked up the phone. I had to go get some change and go use a payphone. Mary wanted to get a cup of coffee at 9 o'clock, so she walked over to the coffee machine. I had to wait until coffee break. Mary had a doctor's appointment, so she said, I'll be right back. I've got to get my supervisor to sign off when I leave to make sure I come back on time. And I had to punch a card to validate I came in on time, and Mary just walked in and sat down. Mr. Chapman, why do you trust me when I'm in Puerto Rico and you don't trust me when I'm in the plant? And I said, you know, you are right. I had no idea... You can get a cup of coffee anytime you'd like. You don't have to punch a time card anymore. If you want to call home, we're going to put phones in the plant. The other thing that happened at the same time, I was walking with the president. He wanted to show me something that was back in the storeroom. We got to the storeroom and there's a cage. So he knocked on the cage and said, can you let us in here? I want to show Mr. Chapman something. So they came and unlocked it and walked in. There's 10 or 12 people working in the storeroom uh, behind the cage. I said, Dan, What did these people do wrong? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you got them all locked up. He said, 
They're not locked up, Bob. This is the storeroom. You've got to secure the storeroom. So I said, you think people are going to steal these bearings and these shafts and, and they're going to walk out the door with bearings and shafts? I said, Dan, take the cages down. I was at a wedding and I was sitting in the aisle and my friend walked his daughter down the aisle. How precious she looked, how proud he was. And so he got to the altar and my friend took the hand of his daughter and said, her mother and I give our daughter to be wed to this young man. And he went and sat down next to his wife. And all of a sudden my mind went to a totally different place. First thing I said was, that's not what that father wanted to say. That's what he was told to say at the rehearsal dinner. What that father wanted to say was, look at young man, her mother and I brought this precious young lady into this world. We have given her all the love and care we could possibly give her. So she's going to be who she's intended to be. And we expect you, young man, to allow her to be who she's intended to be in harmony with you so that she can live a life of meaning and purpose. Do you understand that, young man? Then my mind went to the next place. Oh, my God. All 12,000 people that work for us is somebody's precious child. They're not engineers, accountants, production workers, machinists, storeroom clerks. They're not functions. They're somebody's precious child that's been placed in our care. Wouldn't it be interesting if when we invited somebody to join our company, their family came to the front door and said, look, if you allow your mother, your brother, your son, your daughter, whatever relationship is, to join our firm in this role, we promise you that we will treat them with respect and dignity and allow them to grow professionally and personally and allow them to come home each day knowing that who they are and what they do matters. When we acquire companies, the first thing I do is sit down with the people and say, welcome to the family. We are going to do everything we can do to support your growth as a human being. Probably my favorite story in an acquisition was a guy named Steve. I said, Steve, what's it like for you since Barry Wimler's acquired PCMC? And he said to me, you know, Mr. Chapman, I worked for this company for years. I walked in every day, punched the time card. I was told what to do. I was never asked what I thought. I got 10 things right and I never heard a word. And I got one thing wrong and I got my ass chewed out. And when I go home at night, I wasn't in the best of moods. I'd open the screen door and throw my hat in. And if my hat came flying back, I knew my wife was in a bad mood, so I'd go down and have a beer at the bar. Since Barry Waymiller acquired PCMC, people ask me what I think. And I get to contribute to making things better. So I feel valued. And when I go home at night, I feel better about myself. And you know what? When I feel better about myself, my wife talks to me. And I've had a profound change in my marriage since you bought our company. That meant more to me than the financial return on that company. 
Steve helped me realize that the way we treat people at work profoundly affects the way they go home and treat their spouse, their children, and behave in their community. 88% of all people feel they work for an organization that does not care about them. Most people have managers, bosses, and supervisors who do exactly what their titles describe, manipulating people for financial success, not caring about people for human success. Business could be a powerful force for good in the world if we simply send each person home each night knowing that who they are and what they do matters. A lot of the social unrest we have right now People in our country feel used for somebody else's success. They don't feel cared for. Gallup did a survey of the source of happiness in the world. They thought it was going to be money, but after people make a certain amount of income, it does not create happiness. They thought it was going to be health, and they found out people take their health for granted. They found the number one source of happiness in the world is a good job doing meaningful work with people you enjoy. So what do we deny to 88% of the people in this country? Happiness. Why would you want your child to graduate from college and get a job? Why? They're going to be miserable. I met a gentleman who is an extremely successful private equity leader. I said to him, what do you really feel good about in your life? He said, well, I'm known for my $150 million gift to my alma mater, but what I really feel good about is this minority student athletic scholarship program I have. I said, how many minority student athletes do you help each year? He said, five or six. And I said, that's wonderful. How many people work in your company? He said, 100,000. I said, so what you're telling me is you care about these five or six minority student athletes you sponsored? And you don't give a shit about the 100,000 people that come into your span of care every day? And this incredibly fine gentleman looked at me and he said, I never thought about that. I tell people who run nonprofits, your jobs are going to be gone if I'm successful. We won't need special groups that we fund to heal all the brokenness we create. The greatest act of charity is not the checks we write. It's the way we treat people we deal with in our lives and treat them as somebody's precious child as we would want our children treated. In 08, 09, when we had an unprecedented economic challenge, I remember walking into my board meeting. My board looked at me and said, don't you need to lay off people? I hadn't even sat down yet. And I said, I don't think so. We've got a pretty good backlog going into this. And about four or five weeks later, I get an email that a major company put a huge order we had on hold. Prior to our guiding principle of leadership, where the overriding statement is, we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people, I would have done what everybody else did. You know, it's not our fault. We've got to downsize the company. We've got to get through this crisis. So we're going to let 30% of our people go. And that's just what leaders do, right? When you let Bill or Mary go from the accounting department, but Sue and Fred didn't get let go, Sue and Fred feel miserable because they knew how much Bill and Mary needed that job. And they don't feel safe either. Maybe I'm next. What would a caring family do 
if a family member was in crisis, we would all pitch in and take a little pain so our family member would not get hurt. So the idea popped into my head, what if everybody in our company took a month off without pay, they could take it whenever they wanted, and we wouldn't have to let anybody go. We can get through this together. My team came to me and said, Bob, we can't let them go whenever they want. We need the machinists to do this. We need, we need to tell them when they can go. When we, I said, look, if I'm going to ask somebody to give up a month's salary, I'm going to give them something. And it was overwhelmingly positive reaction. Why? Because it was like doing a charitable contribution. They knew for a fact they were helping the person they sit next to keep their job. And they no longer worried about a layoff. Senior people volunteered to take some of the young people's weeks that they couldn't afford to be without a job. We had people work at church charities. We had people have quality time with their family they wouldn't have had. Yet people gave up a month's salary to do that. And we got through that unbelievably well. Our culture was stronger when we came out and the company jumped and rebounded. People still talk about that. We have kind of transformed that 135-year-old company into a very diversified capital goods consulting company. It's the combination of about 110 acquisitions from around the world. The company is about a $3 billion global company with 12,000 people. You know, a lot of people feel if you're going to be nice to your people, you're not going to perform very well. Since 1997, our share price has gone up over 10% a year, compounded over 25 years. So it is not a non-profit company. It is not a weak company. I think Berkshire Hathaway, since 1997, share price has gone up just under 10%, and ours has gone up close to 15%. So we are a value-creating organization, and that journey has been a 50-year journey for me. I would love to sit down with my dad because my dad worked from 1953 to 1975 at the company and it never did well. He kept it alive, but had some really tough financial challenges. For me to sit down and say, Dad, we've built a $3 billion global company from the foundation you provided me. And the company is now known for its values and it's got a worldwide reputation he would pass out. I was interviewed by some organizational development professors at Washington University some years ago. And after an hour and a half interview, they said to me, you're the first CEO I've ever interviewed that didn't talk about their product. And I said, we've been talking about our product for the last hour and a half. It's our people. I will not go to my grave proud of the machinery we've built. The product is just the economic engine through which we can create human value. Our company is our people. The fifth thing you should know about stakeholder capitalism is that if you try to build a caring and supportive workplace culture as a strategy to increase worker productivity, then you will likely fail. But if the primary goal of your workplace is to help people grow and fulfill their potential, then you're likely to enjoy the performance advantages that come with it.
A few years ago, Bob Chapman invited Raj Sisodia, our guest from episode two, to tour a couple of Barry Waymiller facilities, and the two agreed to co-author a book telling this story and teaching its many lessons under the title, Everybody Matters. Bob Chapman is on a mission to help other workplaces learn how to care for people in the way that Barry Waymiller does, and his team trains hundreds of leaders in other companies each year. You can learn more about that at ccoleadership.com. When it is intentionally designed, workplace culture can be an incredibly positive force in people's lives, in whole families, and even in whole communities. This is an essential part of stakeholder capitalism, to be sure. And this idea is very powerful. But what's even more powerful is when this idea is paired with a commitment to include people who don't have access to a workplace culture like this in the first place. In our next episode, we're taking you inside of a women's prison in Arizona to get a look at the world from a perspective that most business people have never considered. And you'll meet a company that has transformed a call center into a calling. They review each application and they get hundreds of applicants every single time. Once they identify like how many interviewees they want to accept, they'll send the list back over and the list will be posted into each dorm. When I seen my name on the list, I cried. I mean, this is just an interview opportunity. 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism is a project of the Institute for Corporate Transformation. This episode was edited by Nathan Church and produced by Havy Pro Cinema and featured music from Onokan, Chad Lawson, Long Lake, and Airplanes. 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism is written and directed by Nathan Havy. Episode 6 is a story that we feel honored to be able to share with you. And you can get it by subscribing to 10 Things You Should Know About Stakeholder Capitalism wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find a lot of great extras on all of our episodes at stakeholdercapitalism.biz.